Well, hello. My name is Wes Glasgow. A little bit about myself. I'm an elder at the uh, Ridge Community Church in Troy, Michigan. I speak now and then again in churches around the area, mostly in our, our own church when the pastor is gone. Your pastor, Llewellyn, asked me to speak to you today. Give you a little bit of background. I'm retired from the United States Army and have since retirement, I've worked with uh, vehicle engineering with an engineering company and I've re since retired from them as well. But they supported the Tank and Automotive Command in uh, Warren, Michigan. Perhaps you've heard of them or been there. Um, I'm happy to be here in Ann Arbor and I hope you don't hold it against me that I graduated from Ohio State. But that was back in the wonderful days of Woody Hayes and Bo Schemblecker, okay? When we had battles every year, and we're still having battles every year. My message today takes us back to the days of Noah in the Old Testament. Now, you might ask, what in the world could Noah and his ark mean to us today? Was that even really a real thing that happened or just a myth? My intent today is to describe Noah's ark and some features of that ark, which are very similar to that of the Christian life. I hope you'll see at the end of the story that the story of Noah is real, and that it is both a prophetical story and a parable of such. I call it an analogy, as you see on my slide, and it's an analogy of the Christian life. And we can gain, I think, some aspects of the ark that will be really important to us as we... Uh, proceed in our Christian life. <clears throat> now, I have to say that I got a few of these ideas from Charles Spurgeon in one of his sermons back in 1856, but I've added a lot to that. So, um, Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 12 to 22, so we'll, we'll follow through them. On I read from the King James Version, and you know, I'm sorry, that's my favorite one that I grew up with. So, verse 12. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Sound familiar? And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. Verse 16, a window shalt thou make into the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and from everything that is in the earth shall die. Verse 18, but with thee will I establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh too of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with them, with thee. They shall be male and female. Verse 20, of fowls after their kind and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten 
and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. This did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So I'm humbled by the awesome responsibility I have to review God's word and try and interpret it and present it on to you. And in my feeble way, to show you or interpret things that happened some 6,000 years ago and present what I think is a great story with has some small details to it that maybe you never thought about. But I want to show you that God has a plan. He had a plan for this story. He had a plan for what happened. And it's unfolding both in Noah, it unfolded in Noah's day, and it's also today and unfolds into the future. So the title of today's message is Noah's Ark, an analogy of the Christian life. Just to translate what analogy is, it means a similarity between like features of two things for which comparisons can be made. So I'm going to compare things on Noah with things in the Christian life, okay? And the similarities, and I think you'll see that there's a lot of similarities. No, this is not a parable or some leap of faith. I believe and will attempt to show you that various aspects of the ark were ingenious engineering also and are pictorial representations of, of our Christian experience. So let's pray that the Lord Holy Spirit will direct my words today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, bless your holy name. I ask today that your Holy Spirit will be with me as I present the story of Noah's Ark and how you had a plan and a holy covenant to save him and his family. Dear Lord, watch over us. Help me to eliminate those great truths that lie in the story and, and show the facet that this is part of an eternal plan. This is an example to show what's going to transpire in the future. Lord, we trust that you have accepted Christ as our Savior. Help us to understand how you may rescue those who faithfully follow you and help us to cling to you in times of trouble and confusion, which many are happening today. May your Holy Spirit illuminate the message in the hope that it will help us in dealing with our life today. Show us that it's not hard to find you if we look for you or simply look towards you with an air of repentance. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So, as an introduction, the Bible opens with the story, of course, in cre of creation, what happened in the seven days. Then it moves on and talks about some of the first patriarchs, how long they lived, and during the hundreds, the hundreds of years that some of them lived, the earth was populated. It then moves on to the story of Noah's Ark. The trouble was that we see in verse 612, the world had become corrupt and violent to extreme um, measures. And as a result of mankind's extreme corruption in seeking their own desires, God decided that the world was beyond ransom and he decided to destroy all flesh and essentially start over, I guess you could say. He looked down and observed that Noah and his family were the only people that he could find that still look to him, and he established his covenant or agreement, as we saw in verse 18, with them, that he would save Noah and his family and types of every type of flesh. So began the saga of Noah and the ark surviving the great flood that covered the earth. Now, the ark always has some interest to us, but it seems most rele relevant to our children. They love to see all the animals marching into the, the ark. 
as you see in my picture up there in the upper left-hand corner. Now, I looked up a lot of pictures of the ark, and there are many representations, but a large portion are children's cartoon-like depictions of, you know, school Bible stories. I submit to you that there are deeper meanings to the story, and we're going to look at some of those aspects today. And perhaps you have never considered some of these things when you've been reading through the Bible. A lot of people, we just skip over, you know, the first few books of Genesis until we get to the wonderful story of Joseph or Abraham. Now, many of these aspects, I believe, are, have particular relevance to how God is going to unfold his plan for us as the final days approach. Now, first of all, we need to take some, a look at the physical aspects of the ark. We read about, in Scripture, reading from Genesis 6, how big the ark was. Now, was it big enough? Was it big enough for all? First, the ark was big enough for was it, was it big enough for what it was intended. Many people scoff at the size of the ark. How could it house all these animals? How could it house all these this food stuff and last for a year? Because that's how long the, the ark floated around for a whole year before it came to rest. Okay. Now nobody knows exactly. Verse fifteen told us that the ark was three hundred cubits long, fifty cubits wide and 30 cubits tall, and was made of gopher wood. Now, nobody knows exactly what gopher wood is. It might have been a wood that physically disappeared in the flood and is no more. But it's most likely that it's some type of a fir tree. Why? Because he was told to, to cover the inside and the outside with pitch. And pitch comes basically from resin from fir trees. So it might have been cypress or some very strong fir tree. Uh, we really don't know, but it had to do the job, and it had to have minimal shrinkage, perhaps, but the pitch was taking care of it. Now, the measurements of the size of the ark were measured in cubits. Now, a cubit was the length from the elbow to the end of the fingers, and it's usually from 17 to 21 inches long, okay? At that length, say 21 inches, the ark could have been as long as 525 feet as wide as 87.5 feet, and as high as 52.5 feet. So it was pretty good size. This illustration, the next, uh, shows the size of the ark in relationship with some modern uh, ships and boats. As you can see, the ark was larger than any wooden ocean-going ship in known history. That uh, sail ship there, one of the clipper ships, was the, probably the longest one that was ever employed. And you see the Queen Mary, the ocean liner Queen Mary. So you can see it was about half the length of the Queen Mary. So, and also, my lead-in sh uh, slide back ways showed you a physical representation of an ark in the Ark Museum down in Kentucky. Has anybody here been to the Ark Museum in Kentucky? Okay, so you got an appreciation of how long, how big it was. Now, that ark replica probably represents the dimensions well. I haven't been down there, so I haven't seen them, so I don't know if they're going to cover some of these details, but uh, I think the ark was very, very simple. Anybody here been in the Navy? Anybody been in naval engineering? Anybody have a large-scale boat? Okay. My point is, now some of the terms that you use in naval architecture or naval boating is some of the terms like bow, stern, port, starboard, 
prow, stem, keel, amidships, forecastle, etc. All these terms, they all apply to the ship, and it's basically in the arrangement of how the ship is. But I think that the ark was actually just a big flat box, like a box sitting on the floor. It didn't have to have a keel, didn't have to have a bow, didn't have to have a prow. And I think it looks sort of like this, probably the best illustration that I found. Now, I'm speculating, but all this thing had to do was float. Pick up and float when the water rose, and it had to survive the turbulence of the flood. Okay? So I think it was this, you know, something like this, but was it big enough? Was our, our, what our question is. The ark represented in Noah's time was the mode of salvation for all flesh. All the flesh that God wanted to rescue were on that ark. And he decided how big it was going to be, and he knew who was going to be on the boat. I believe there probably was some uh, uh, genes and, and some uh, species maybe that didn't make it on the boat. But anyway, he brought the animals onto the ark. He caused the animals to appear. uh, Noah and his his sons didn't go out and find them and bring them. They came on their own. So God brought them, so he had the power to do that, to bring them from wherever they came from to be housed on that ark. Now, the fact that the animals projected to be saved on the ark shows God's plan of salvation for them was adequate and that the plan of salvation for us is adequate for all those who are called to repentance by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this ark was big enough to rescue them. God's plan is big enough to rescue us. He knows eventually who will come to him, and he has made provision for all of us who believe, just as he did for all of those animals that came aboard the ark. Another objective might occur to you that there would not be enough room for the food and the provisions for the animals for a whole year on this ark. And But you might must reconcile our thoughts of making a limited amount of food last for such a time that they did not long know how long it would be. They didn't know how long it was going to be. So how could Noah and his, the eight of them, go out and get enough forage and food for all the animals on the ark? But that's not a problem with God, is it? The Bible records several instances where food or material replenishment was endless. Remember, Elijah's filling of the widow's oil bottle. It continuously filled with oil, and she sold the oil and got food to feed herself, family, and Elijah when he came to visit. There was also the instances where Jesus took just a few items of food and fed 4,000 once and 5,000 another time. So God has no problem replenishing uh, food. Now, verse 21 that we read directed Noah to gather of all the foods eaten and bring it aboard, but this only reinforces the possibility that he was only brought samples of the food. Because remember, all those cases I just gave you, God and Jesus started with something and then replenished it, kept making it, kept making it come. And I believe that that's what's happened. Of course, that's a supposition on my part. But as an ex-soldier used to providing food for 850 men and all the supplies that they used, I can see that that's a monumental task and that he had to try to have food and replenishment for all these animals. So that leads to our second point. Was the ark the only means of escaping the flood? Now, during the 100 years that Noah was building the ark, 
Now, he must have undergone a lot of derision as he tried to explain what he was doing. Some even say that before Noah, there was no physical rain on the earth. That there was only dew saturating the plants every morning. There was no real rain. We don't really know that, but there's some discussions about that. So they must have had, well, the public opinion around him was Noah was crazy, especially when they were seeing what he was building. Maybe they asked him why he was building it to protect against a flood, which they probably had no experience with. So even his family was probably skeptical, but they turned in, supported him, helped him build. Now, all this would have changed, of course, when the deluge started, when the rain started coming down, maybe something they'd never even seen before. And the fountains of the great deep, as it described in verse 711, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. By that time, the animals were aboard. Noah's family was secure aboard also. And as is told in verse 716 in Genesis, the Lord himself shut them all, shut the door and closed them all in safely. Now, it turned out that the ark was the only way of escape. Only those who were in the ark were safe. You can imagine the desperation of animals and people climbing the highest hills, desperately gathering something to float on, some kind of a boat. Anything that would float, they would have been on. Their efforts, however, were to no avail because God's plan was to kill them so they would have been overcome and they would not have survived. It was too bad. The water was up 15 cubits, it says, above the highest mountain. And none could escape, including the birds and animals of all types, as none could swim or survive a year, a year in the water. So what's this analogy mean to us? It is that in Noah's time, there was only one way of salvation. You had to be on that ark. Today, it's salvation through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to get to heaven. Now, we may scoff that God is unfair to require us to go through Jesus for our salvation, but he's sovereign. He does what he has decided. And his plan is that we have to come to Jesus for our salvation. Because it says there's no, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I'll show you here in these next two verses uh, some proof of this. So if you can go to slide 8a. So Jesus himself said uh, that uh, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then Peter in his famous uh, uh, speech in Acts, verse 12 here, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So if you believe that, you've got to understand that Jesus has provided a way, God has provided a way for us to be saved, to escape the death that's impending on all of us. And we must accept it. Now we may want it otherwise, uh, but unfortunately, we, the creatures, can hardly say to the Creator and tell Him what we think and how we would like to see it happen. He's decided. He's given a plan. Our job is to go out and let others know about it and accept that plan. So it's only requiring the submission and acceptance of Christ by faith, and we will be accepted then into the ark. We'll make it there. So the third point is, was the ark a safe refuge? Now, do we know whether the ark that Noah built would be safe refuge that would get its occupants through the whole year, the danger that they were in with the flood? 
and its aftermath, we see that God gave Noah some careful instructions on how to build the ark to include what wood to use and to cover pitch inside and out. Pitch, of course, is waterproof when it's applied properly. Now, there's no mention that it ever sprung a leak. There were no shoals or rocks once it lifted up off the, off the ground. A lot of people think that there was very few, if any, very few mountains at that time. So once it lifted up and floated off, there was no shoals or rocks where it might run aground. All it had to do was float. There's no description in the Bible that anybody was bailing water, that there was no pumps set up or something like that. So it worked. What Noah built was work. It was safe. It got him through. Now, there might have been lightning and thunder with hail and heavy rain beating against its sides and top, but it appeared to pass through whatever hurricane winds or storms that happened during that time. Perhaps God even acted supernaturally, like I talked about the food. Because we have an example of that in the New Testament with Jesus quieting the winds and the sea when he was sailing across the Lake of Galilee in Mark 4, 35 to 41. Picture the ark now floating on a calm sea. All around it, it's calm, and it's just floating. A little bit out farther, there's storms and wild stuff going on, but God has created the calm around the ark. And when we look at what the ark and we, we think about it, um, it needed to have calm to keep from capsizing and keep from being uh, swamped, water rushing up over the top. We don't know what its weight was, so we don't know how far down it was in the water. But we know that Jesus and God has the capability of protecting the ark as needed. So the analogy for us, and just to get back one point, remember when Jesus calmed the water in Mark verse 4, 41, what does his disciples say? What manner of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? One of the greatest verses in the Bible in my mind. Now, the analogy for us Christians is the ark will safely get us through life as we view the ark as a refuge for our Christian life. The gospel that we believe in has no flaws. Those who are in Christ are safe. Christ says, they shall never perish, neither will any pluck them out of my hands. This is not to say that there won't be storms. There will be tempests around us at times, but we can fully trust in our Savior that he will get us through the problems we face. And, he will, and we will face those trials because we live in a fallen world. And many around us have no hope, and they occasionally, often, occasionally or even often will cause us troubles. But there's no fear, really, of our ship sinking. Once we're accepted by Christ and we accept him as our Savior, we're safe, and we're not going to be lost. Now, we may lose our life, because we're all going to be die, die because that's the penalty of sin is death. But we, as Christians, have eternal life. And so the moment we accept Christ as our Savior, the eternal life for us starts. And the great verses in John chapter 3 bear some of these things out. We are born of the Spirit in verse uh, 3.6 by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the great promises of 3.16 and 3.36, which I'll, I'll show up here on the board here. Uh, verse uh, 316, we all know that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And also in verse 336, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God abideth on him. So the ark was made of good wood, and our faith lies in a reliable Savior. He came to save that which was lost. That was in uh, Matthew 18, 11, And our salvation does not rest on our efforts. There's nothing we can do on our own efforts to gain uh, heaven. It's only by the grace of God. And all we have to do is, is accept the grace and mercy and the, the uh, uh, great... Uh, the death of Christ on the cross, and then Christ will, will deliver us whole and cleansed of all of our unrighteousness, and we will stand uh, spotless before the Father in heaven one day. So the next point was, was there only one window in the ark enough? We read in verse 16 that there was only a single window in the ark. Now, it might have been one window with many panes, or it might have been a single open window. Imagine the size of, you know, six, 500 feet long and one single window. Must have been a big window, maybe. So we don't know where that window was, but we presume it was in the top, as it is described in verse 16, as a cubit above. Okay, so probably stuck up uh, and was uh, horizontal and let the light in. Now, some pictures I've seen of the ark show a row of windows on the top. But it is interesting to contemplate how the animals and people in the ark got their light through only one window. Under most circumstances, the light could only go so far, and most of those in the lower reaches of the ship, not under the light, probably were in the dark or could see dimly at best. Now, they might have had some kind of mirrors or some kind of reflective rock that would reflect, reflect the, the light, or they could have had flames and lanterns, torches and lanterns. The only problem with that, with that is it would be extremely dangerous because the ship is coated with the pitch, which is extremely flammable. Okay, so the light source, wherever it came, that was not a lot. Now, carrying on with our analogy, one single window represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which comes into us upon our salvation, gives us the light of the Lord to see our sin when we sin. And it changes our nature and infuses us with a spirit pleasing to God. When God looks down on us, he doesn't see sin. He sees a, a God, Christ's blood, and through that, he sees us, does not see our, son, our sin. And the Holy Spirit changes us, but we still maintain on, on earth here our carnal not nature. Okay? Our carnal nature is there, and it is in constant warfare with the spiritual nature, which I'm sure your pastor has talked about at times. So it's up to us. We can allow the carnal spirit to prevail, or we can allow the Holy Spirit to prevail as we live our life. So there's a battle going on. Satan would like nothing better than us to revert back to our carnal spirit. So, and this kind of analogizes the way, unfortunately, there's different types of churches now, okay? There's different types of messages, some of them are kind of opaque. Some of them are, are there more light is shining through. Okay, it's kind of like looking at the light through different windows, some dark and some crystal clear. Though we know the Lord, we may rely on others to lead us to the light. And from them, we may get a different distillation of that light. It's our responsibility to mature as Christians once we're saved, to mature, to go directly to the Spirit. 
I just recently read a book by Martin Luther, and that was the big problem. The Holy Spirit was to work through each of us as we read the Scripture. Unfortunately, very few could read the Scripture until it was translated into German for him. So he was very critical of the Catholic Church because they had departed from the Scripture directly. And the people could not tell because they could not read the Scripture. So back to our art example, or ark example. Some in the bottom of the ship, far from the light, are in total darkness. Okay? They may have lost the clear light of the window. They may be in the bow of the ship and the window's in the middle and they can't see. Now, sin still rules in their life. Okay? They may be saved. They're in the ark. They're saved. They're in the ark. Sin rules in their life. They're not going to be uh, uh, Christians. Okay? Those closer to the window may be on the second story. Now, they see the light dimly. They're considered babes in Christ. Okay? They've never moved on. They've never determined to read the Bible themselves, never to study, to pray like they should, constantly on a daily basis. And, and so as a result, they feel the guilt. Their sin will sometimes often be in, in control. And, and as a result, a lot of them feel like that they're not saved. You know, they've got to constantly pray. They're, they're worried that God has left them or forgot about them or whatever. They're not sure of their salvation. Basically, the Holy Spirit does not rule in their life. Now, there are others that are closer to the window. Now, these are the ones who surrender their will completely to the Holy Spirit. These will mature as Christians because they, they're driven to read the Bible, to pray, do the things that they know are necessary. They need to soak up God's Word. They can't really depend on man all the time to tell them the right word. Maybe they don't compare. They don't listen to word that they suspect and then check it out and read the Bible and then you know, mature as Christian. And most importantly, lead others to the Lord and disciple others. Because as mature Christians, it's our role. Our role is to speak the gospel to those who haven't heard it and those that accept his word. Our job is to disciple them. By that, I'm sure you know what that means. It's get them in the word, teach them the right way, and, and get them going so that they soak up the Holy Spirit as they go along, and then they can become mature Christians and move on. Okay, what, next point is why were there multiple rooms in the ark? We note in verse 14 that Noah was directed to make rooms in the ark. So that meant that there were some different, there were walled-off areas for different animals like we see today at a zoo. You know, they don't put zebras in with lions, and they don't put elephants in with mice, right? Elephants don't get along with mice, right? So evidently there was rooms in the ark for the different species. And those different uh, rooms would greatly ease the task of Moa and his family to go around and feed them and nourish them, take care of them, okay? Because basically they're sitting in there for a whole year and they can't move around in the wild anymore. So it must be difficult to control them. I think God had a hand in that too. Now, thinking in terms of our analogy, we can see that there are different sects of Christian faith, okay? We're, they're all in the ark, but there's different Christians living in different rooms, okay? There's only one gospel, but there's, only, there's one ark. They're in the, if they're in the ark, regardless of their sect, we might find that there's some Christian and missionary alliance folks in one room. There might be Baptists in another, Methodists in another, Episcopalians in another. 
There may even be some Catholics in one. If they truly accepted Christ as their Savior, they're on the ark, and they're in a room. They're going to church. They're worshiping the Lord. They're all on an equal plane. They're all in the ark. Now, we may not agree on all the issues with these different uh, uh, denominations, but they're all on the ship, same ship, and we can all walk around to those different rooms and say, grace be with you all as long as you're in the ark. So we can't belittle and demean. We may try to educate them, but if they're truly saved, they're in the ark and they're equivalent with us, all of us, together. Next point is, why was there only one door in the ark? So we need to consider that there were multiple rooms, but there was only one door on the side, as mentioned in verse 16. Now, some of the animals that came in, like the giraffes, might have had to stoop their head to get in the door. There might have been small animals like rodents, rabbits, and stuff that had to, or even snails that had to run up that long ramp and took a long time to get in the door. But there was only one door, only one way to get into the ark. And the door had to be large enough for the biggest ones to enter, like I mentioned. Now, we don't know if there was some kind of traffic cop outside guiding them all in some of the time, but somehow they all came through that door on their own, at their own initiative. They came in the door. Now, God noted, told them to come there, but they had to physically come in the door. <clears throat> now, the other point was, now this is similar to another analogy that Jesus uses in uh, the New Testament, and that's him being the door of the sheepfold. You probably read about that. Now, he decides who will enter the ship, sheepfold. Okay? Normally, when they went at night, he, they would put out some kind of a barrier and bring the sheepfold sheep in at night, and he would stand at the door, stand at the door and move them all in, identify each one of them, and then guard them during the night. And why is that? Because if there's any other person trying to come in the door and not come through the door with Jesus, then he's a liar or a uh, thief, as these next two verses show. Um, This is from John chapter 10, verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto him, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. And then verse 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I come that they, they, the sheep, might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We've all ran across these verses. But it's the same deal. The door in the ark, they had to physically come in. If any of them stood outside and said, I don't feel like going in now. Uh, or it's not just the time for me to go. When the rain started, they would have perished because God closed the door. And once he closed the door, they're lost. He's not going to open it up again for them to come through. So when the door is closed and the ark began to flow, many of them might grab onto the ark. Some of them might climb on the top. Some of them might try to get in the window, but they would not get in. They would not get in. God would repel them. It was too late. And it's just like it's going to be too late when the, when the world ends, which I'll talk about in a little bit, if we're not in the ark, it's too late. Folks, it's too late. Got to be in the ark. Now, the next point we want to talk about is what, what do the multiple ark floors mean? There was multiple floors. There was three. The description in verse 16 told Noah to build three floors, the bottom floor, middle floor, and upper floor. Now, based on the height of the ark, each one of these would have been 17 and a half feet tall if they were all equal. That's pretty tall. Probably about that size, I bet. 
Anyway, it had to be high enough for the animals, even a giraffe, to be in there. Now, two of the floors, if you think about it, if there's a window up above and they had an opening in two of the floors to let the light in, two floors would have a hole in the middle, and then the bottom floor would be down there. So that would that'd be the best way to build it, probably. So two of the floors probably had a direct opening under the window. Now, we don't know if that's true, but we did know that some of the animals were in the bottom of the ship, some of the animals were in the middle, and some were in the top in their little separate rooms. Now, our analogy can view the animals on each floor as people we know, who know the Lord but are at different levels of their faith, similar to the Holy Spirit example that I showed you. Those at the lowest level are those with little real faith and trust in the Lord. They've accepted the Lord, but they're ruled like by their, com- their carnal spirit, and a lot of times they always look at the dark side of things. They're always miserable. You wonder, hey, you're a Christian. Why don't you show the joy of the Lord? Why are you so miserable? in your salvation. They're in the ark. You're in the ark. You're saved. God is going to save you. It's a function of your own faith and how strong it is. They lean to their own understanding. Many of them depend on works to get to the Lord. Big thing in the Catholic Church, of course. Those of you that know the Catholic works is very important to them, as it says it is to Jehovah Witnesses and, and others. They're not happy unless everybody around them conforms to their view. A lot of these people are very legalistic, okay? They want everybody to worship the same way they do. They look down on some of those other denominations that don't believe the same way. So these people, in short, don't have the joy of the Lord, okay? And a lot of it depends on their faith, strength of their own internal faith. Now, the people on the second level are no more safer than those above or below. They're all in the ark. But a lot of these are unsure of themselves and, again, their position with the Lord. They're constantly worrying when they sin. Did, did, is God mad at me? Is God going to retaliate? I'd sin. Is God going to do something to him? We, we don't have a God like that. that our God uh, uh, loves us. Okay? He, want, he sometimes gives us trials, tribulations, but he always gives us a way of escape. A lot of people don't believe that. They're always depending too much on their emotions how they feel at any given moment. As Christians, our faith should be pretty solid. We should believe in the promises of God. So they wonder whether God loves them and how he can love them and still allow bad things to happen to them. Well, bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. Things go wrong. People do things crazy that affect us. People lie, cheat, and steal, blame it on us, things like that. Lots of stuff goes on. So those are the people in the second level. Now the people at the third level uh, are the ones that are more mature and they have a strong faith. They trust in the Lord no matter what happens. They thank the Lord for even good things that happen and bad things that happen. I read a book recently about praise, about praise and how we should praise the Lord even when bad things happen. So they sing and give praise constantly to the Lord. Uh, not only for the bad things, but also for all the trials we face. It all comes down to this. Do we know Jesus Christ or do we not? Do we believe what he says? Do we have that personal relationship with him? Now, he tells us that no one's going to be able to pluck us out of his hands. Okay? We don't lose our salvation once we're truly saved. We need to covet the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to tell us, to tell others about the Lord, and we want to be on the top floor. 
if we're in those lower floors, we need to realize, come to, a, come to Jesus meeting, right? We need to realize where we stand with him and then move up. Read the Bibles, learn what God has given to us, and, and uh, <clears throat> live better. I'm running a little short of time here. I'm going to have to speed up here. The next point is, what do the different animals' flesh represent? And basically, there was two by two led into the ark of the unclean beasts. And then there was five or seven led in of all the clean beasts. As we, it's not in our verses, but down in verse, chapter 7, verse 2, Noah brought seven clean beasts on. These were the ones that they routinely sacrificed when they built their uh, temple. Okay? So these basically represent the people that come in. God is not a respecter of persons. He saves the rich, those who are the, the proud, those who are, you know, uh, and those down at the lowest levels of society. That, you know, I'm not going to offend anybody, but you know what I mean. The lowest levels of society, those that are deep sinners, lost in their sin, you know, they may be drug addicts, whatever. All they've got to do is repent and look to God, and he will save them. And all of them will be in the ark. All the flesh will be the same. They're different types of flesh, but they're all equivalent. And how do we know what that means? Our slide here, the next slide, uh, 14a, these two verses, you read real close to them in our earliest morning in Revelation. Basically, I'm not going to read them here, but uh, there's going to be all saints in heaven from every kindred, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Not only people from those nations, but people from every level of the clean and the unclean from those nations. They're all going to stand out there in the multitudes in heaven, you know, and all are going to proclaim like you guys did this morning, holy, 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 Lord God is holy. So, again, I, you know, there's, God does not make distinctions among men. Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, whether you're clean or unclean group, uh, he will meet you. He will in no wise cast you out. So, and one point I want to make is sometimes it's very difficult for those who are wealthy and influent or proud. It's harder for them to become a Christian than it is for some of the people in the lower classes because there's nothing wrong with them. Everything's going well. Why, what do they need a Savior for? They've got to be in the ark as well as anybody else. Okay, my next point, probably to wrap things up, is the prophet prophetical aspects that God uses the ark to represent, okay? So looking at all we looked at before, one suspects that God has a hidden purpose in the Noah story. It's got to mean more than it, than it just, you know, depicts in these few verses, and I think it does. Some people think this is a fairy tale, but I think it might be dangerous to think that. Because we have Jesus himself vouchsafing that Noah... And what is stated in Genesis is correct. We read in Matthew 24, 36 to 39, put our verses up here. This is Jesus himself speaking. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah, the days of Noah were, he's recognizing the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage 
until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Then it was too late. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the son of man, the coming of the son of man be. Now I couldn't hardly be more clearer than that. That he recognized what Noah and that analogy that we're talking about today meant. It's a rescue of, of the Christians, the righteous. And so Noah's Ark seems to be a harbinger of the second coming of Christ. It's pretty obvious when you think about it. I speak as a pre-tribulation believer. I don't know where you guys stand, but I think that you're pre-tribulation based on what the brother spoke this morning. So Jesus at some point is going to come like the thief in the night, in the twinkle of the eye. And those who are ready have to be ready to be, get in the ark and be saved. And there are three examples from history. Remember, Jesus, when he says three, something three times, that's critical. You better listen up and pay attention to what he says. There's three examples. Two of them are in the Bible and one isn't. First, we have the example of Noah. He's rescued from the flood that kills everybody else. Then we have Lot and his family in Genesis 19. And remember Lot. You know, remember Abraham talking with, with God himself or the Lord, whoever was there, saying, if you can find 50 people there, you won't destroy the city. Can you find 40 people there, you won't destroy the city? Yes, I will not destroy the city. He got down to 10. They couldn't find 10. They could only find Lot and his family. And Lot and his family were rescued and got away before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, except for his wife, who, looking back, was turned into a pillar of salt. Salt. So we see that God has the power of changing the very nature of things. So he could have fed all those animals on the ark. Now the third one, not in the Bible, was the miraculous salvation of the Christians when the Roman general Cestius came and invested Jerusalem just a few years after Jesus' crucifixion. Suddenly, the, the Romans built their ramparts. They, their army was all around the city. And, and uh, at the last minute, they pulled away. The Christians, meanwhile, recognized the meaning of Luke 21, 20, and 21. That called for them to depart and flee to the mountains when they saw that Jerusalem was compassed with armies. So they did. All the Christians, you know, the ones that were in Jerusalem, the results of the 3,000 in the uh, Pentecost and all that, they were still alive. They all escaped. They escaped secret. The Jews didn't see him escape. The Romans didn't see him escape. They escaped out and they went to uh, Perea or Pella in the land of Perea beyond the Jordan River where they were saved. And then meanwhile, Titus comes back with Roman, more Roman legions and totally destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and fulfilled the verse that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 2, that there would not be remain one stone upon another in Jerusalem. Now, the point of all this is that we must be in the ark before the destruction comes. When the destruction comes, we're not in the ark. We've got a problem. Now, there's some that say after the, the Lord comes in the rapture that many will be saved during the tribulation period. The problem is almost all of them are going to be killed by Antichrist and his minions, and they're going to be martyrs. You read Revelation, remember all the martyrs under the altar crying out for justice. They're the ones who were killed uh, during the tribulation. Okay, I don't want to get into that, but uh, moving on, I think there's some takeaways that we can get. I'll move through them pretty rapidly. 
Uh, even though the story of Noah's Ark took place five to 6,000 years ago, I believe it did take place, just as it was said. Why? Jesus uh, 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 validated it. And the various aspects of the Noah's Ark are so important for describing the way the Christian, what, to us as Christians today. So there are some takeaways that we can glean. First, God loves us and often makes a way of escape. And we, we see that in the Bible. And that's a, an actual verse. You, you probably know where that is. So God loves us and makes a way of escape. Now God led those animals into the ark. He rescued Lot from the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he moved Christians to escape the last moment from the destruction of Jerusalem. So, point two, if we trust in him, he will provide a final refuge above all the storms of life. Now, we may suffer from those storms of life. Some of us may die in those storms of life, but we, uh, with eternal life, we, ha- we are rescued. <clears throat> Thirdly, we are all in the same boat. We must not discriminate against other Christians. Okay? We can have discussions with them. We can, do, we can talk, you know, finer points, but we should trust. If they say they believe in Jesus Christ, their Savior, that should be enough to satisfy us. They're all, we're all in the same ark. They may be in lower levels of the ark. They may be of little faith, don't have much influence from the Holy Spirit. That's just a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of knowledge. So it's our job maybe to help them with their knowledge so that they can become more mature Christians. Because some people get saved and they think it's all over. Hey, i got a ton of eternal life. I'm going to heaven. don't have to do nothing. That may be true. Uh, but some think are, are deceived by Satan thinking that they are saved, okay? Unless you have that mo- moving of the Holy Spirit in you, uh, you, need, you, you need to bow and pray to the Lord and try to get it. And as we discussed, we want the full light of the Holy Spirit, and we want to be on the top level of the ark. God calls upon us to fulfill his mission in, in Acts 1.8, you know, uh, that's our mission. That was A.B. Simpson, our founder's dream, was to reach all the people throughout the world. Now, he was not counting on only our denomination. He allied up with lots of other denominations to do that, and we must all do that. Christ is calling. He's given us the mission to lead others to the Lord. I hear, though, that some people that are not being led to the Lord in the Arab countries and you know, Islam countries are having dreams. They're dreaming dreams. They're meeting Christ in other ways. That's a fault on us, folks, I think. So the only way in the ark... Okay, the next point was we must be seek the influence of the Holy Spirit to render ourselves a true living sacrifice to God. And like I mentioned, the only way in the ark is to become believers in Jesus Christ. Anyone sincerely determined to come to Christ will be found by the good shepherd who guards the sheepfold. He goes out. He has the 99 lost sheep or 99 good sheep in the field. He goes out to find the lost sheep. So you come to him, he will in no wise cast you out, according to John 6.37. All who come to Christ will be in no wise ways cast out. Now we may want to wait and reject the call of the Lord for us to be saved. You know, there might be a better day. Oh, there's a better day. Coming tomorrow, but we're not guaranteed any tomorrow, okay? Christ could come today. Today is the day of salvation, some say. 
So we must follow God's way only and on time to be saved. Before we die, before we breathe our last, we must come to Christ for our salvation in order to get in the ark. If we're not in the ark, nothing but bad is going to happen. So let's pray. Dear Lord, may your Holy Spirit convict our listeners that we must come before you in earnest prayer, asking for forgiveness and recognizing you as the Lord of our life. If we've prayed the prayer of repentance, our fate is sealed in heaven. But if we've not made the prayer, the angels in heaven are all waiting. They're waiting, a cloud of witnesses, waiting for us to accept you. The condemnation that we deserve once we come to Christ that will have no dominion over us. You've promised us eternal life, and that will be attained. Your Holy Spirit will confirm our desire to come to Christ, and it will confirm our acceptance of Christ if we pay attention to the Holy Spirit and read your word. If anyone listens, listening feels that they've fallen away from the Lord, that they've backslidden, uh, believe on the word of God when he says... Uh, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just praying a repentance prayer to the Lord, asking forgiveness will return us into right standing with God. And the Holy Spirit will work in our lives. So we ask that the Holy Spirit move among us and convict us of the steps that we need to take to come into the right relationship to you and be located in the ark when the trump is sounded or when we die. Lord, we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.